1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Aaron Klein, author of The Analects, A Guide, published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Aaron.
2: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah, glad to have you. So your book focuses on the Analects of Kongza, also known by his Latinized name as Confucius who is perhaps the most well-known Chinese philosopher, at least in what we call the West. So let's start out um, talking about the Analects. What is your book's argument about the Analects in summary? And why did you think it was an important book to write?
2: Well, let's see. My my main argument in the book is that um, the Analects is a text that can fit into lots of different categories um, and can be studied in lots of different ways. Particularly when we are working with really different academies, uh, different uh, different um, categories in the academy today. Um, so it can be studied as a philosophical text, as a religious text, um, studied as literature. Um, I think it's studied beautifully in East Asian studies departments as well. So we have a lot of disciplinary approaches um, that can be helpful for shedding light on the text. Um, One element of the text that has been neglected in its study throughout its history, especially um, once it began to be translated into Western languages, um, is Taking the Analects as a religious text and looking closely at its, its religious elements and the spiritual dimensions of what it means to live a good life. So, I'm looking specifically at the Analects as a sacred text and arguing that, um, that it's important to study the dimensions of the text that are properly regarded under the category as religious and sacred and spiritual. Um, and that enhances our understanding of the text and that it actually is, is necessary for us to understand the text fully.
0: Great. And how did you come to be interested in Chinese philosophy and Confucianism and the Analects in particular?
2: Well, I started out um, as a music major in college. um, And I went and had a chance to study abroad in China as an undergraduate. And I, I ended up studying abroad in China purely kind of as an accident. I was trying to fulfill Um, course requirements, core requirements toward my degree. Um, Ended up taking a philosophy course just to check one of those boxes um, and um, loved the class. It was the hardest class I'd ever taken, but it was actually a (laughs) comparative (laughs) philosophy class. Um, And so we looked at Islamic philosophy, Japanese philosophy, Chinese philosophy. um, And then the professor who taught the course was actually organizing study abroad trips um, to some of those places. And so um, I ended up doing my study abroad experience in China. And it was once... I. I saw the degree to which Chinese philosophy informs um, the cultures of East Asia, I really became interested in focusing on that area. So my dad is a cultural anthropologist. And so I grew up with a deep appreciation for the ways um, that we dialogue across cultural lines. Um, and I was just very struck by how in these traditions, when we look to East Asia and South Asia, I was very struck by how Um, understanding the philosophical underpinnings of these cultures really um, kind of holds the key to understanding their cultural values and being able to dialogue and and think across cultural lines.
0: Hmm. And so it sounds like you had a somewhat unusual introduction to philosophy because most people don't start with a sort of comparative approach. How how did you get to the Analects in particular? It sounds like you went to China and that informed the influence in Chinese philosophy, But, but why the Analects?
2: So my work has, I've tended to focus a lot on the Analects in my work. Um, and I work on both early Confucian and early Taoist texts, proto daoist texts, Um Uh, both in particular. Um, I've ended up working a lot on the Analects because it's a text that I've been drawn back to again and again. And I think initially, um, as a philosopher, it's common for someone to to look more to texts like the Mengza and the Shunza, where you have these very clear theories of human nature and things that are easy to put into conversation um, with Western views. Um, but I really, when it came to questions of human flourishing, I kept coming back to the Analects. And, and I really came to believe that this is a text that has been neglected by philosophers, um, but has a lot to say and, and really forms the foundation for all those later philosophers that we tend to look to a little bit more easily when we're trying to create conversations, um, and get people to take Chinese philosophy seriously. Um, mm-hmm. But this is really where we see the vision emerge, um, in the Analects. And I think there are substantive views there that, that are worthy of our attention.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the connection to philosophy and teaching in the discipline, because we can start with sort of a big picture question here. Maybe I'm interviewing you for the philosophy channel um, and your PhD is in philosophy. And as you said, you started out in philosophy. You've helped, you've had, you have positions at Georgetown in philosophy and so on. Um, but you also have a home at Georgetown in theology and religious studies. And one of your arguments in this book is that the Analects is a sacred text. So, I mean, this may raise some questions. First of all, the disciplinary one, do you have a big picture sense of how you understand the relationship between the disciplines of philosophy and religious studies in terms of texts like, like this or, or Chinese philosophy?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, all of my degrees are in philosophy and I really, it, w- it was unexpected when I ended up coming to Georgetown and my primary appointment is in theology and religious studies. Um, but I think as most philosophers know, it is actually very difficult to find um, a philosophy department that is hiring a specialist in any area of Asian philosophy. And so, um, when I had the opportunity to come to Georgetown, and I was previously at the University of Oregon in a joint appointment between religious studies and philosophy. Um, and so, I've always sort of worked on those lines because I think if you work on a lot of these traditions, you recognize that they are both philosophical and religious traditions and don't fall neatly into our categories um but i also think we can we can say this of all kinds of philosophers and we we tend to want to fit things into one or the other category but if you think about figures like aquinas and augustine of course but even if you just look at socrates and and where he's coming from and plato um you can you can move forward through the history of philosophy um there are important religious dimensions to so many of many of these philosophers views When we turn to East Asia and South Asia, we really are dealing with traditions that that I think are worthy of study by philosophers and um, by scholars of religion and theologians. But this is tricky um, in the Western Academy. And I think um, especially the tension between Um, philosophy and religion and the tendency of philosophy to be a discipline that is raising critical questions about religion um, has led a lot of philosophy departments and a lot of philosophers to be a little bit hesitant about including traditions that are also clearly religious traditions. Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism all um, fit that bill. So I never expected to be in a theology and religious studies department, but that's where the job was. Um, for me. And and I've been thrilled to come to Georgetown. I'm affiliated with philosophy. Um, They don't have a specialist um, who who primarily works on these traditions, but they cross-list all of my courses. And and I have such a wonderful group of colleagues there, as well as in theology and religious studies. But the truth is, is that um, theology and religious studies um, as a discipline has been much more inclusive and broad in its outlook. So you're more likely to find people who work on different cultural traditions, different parts of the world um, in theology and religious studies departments, as opposed to a philosophy department. And that's that makes me sad. I wish that there were more broadening. Um, and it's a matter not just of it's not just about including people of color. Um, I think we want to have women and men and people of color, um, people who look every different kind of way and every kind of diversity possible. But we also need to think about diversity in terms of the traditions and parts of the world that we have spec- Specialists in in our departments.
0: Mm, yeah. Let's let's dig in, dig into the, the analytics. And I think once we unpack this a bit, we can maybe circle back to understand this, this question that you're raising about the these categories a little bit better. So, how, how do you understand the relationship between what we call today philosophy and religion in the analytics? You've suggested it's a text that we can study fruitfully in both ways. Is it a philosophical text? Is it a religious text? Is it both? Are these not useful categories for approaching it? How do you understand this within the analects?
2: Yeah. Um- I mean, to a certain extent, they're not useful categories, um, but they are the categories that we're accustomed to. And so I think it's fine to, to talk about that. I think it's both, um, we find a religious view and we find a philosophical view. Um, I think if you want to focus more on the philosophy, you can focus on all those virtues, um, the account of self-cultivation, the role of ritual in shaping a, a person and instilling those virtues, cultivating those virtues in people. Um, you can think about human questions of human flourishing, um, what human flourishing entails, um, what the necessary and sufficient conditions are for it, you certainly find a robust account of those things in the text. Um, But I think if you only study those things and don't want to dip into anything that looks like religion, then you're really only ever going to get half the picture um rituals in ancient china are are deeply bound up with ancestor veneration and beliefs in spirits and practices that relate to the spirits of of um members of our family that have died um rituals um were required to bring a sense of the sacred um a sense of reverence to them um a genuine sense of solemnity gratitude humility um and and i think once we get into those qualities where we're getting into questions of the sacred and the religious and the spiritual. Um, and, and certainly it's a different view than one finds in Christianity or Judaism or Islam um, but but I, nevertheless, it's, it's certainly a religious view. You also have this very mysterious entity, Tian, um, which is widely translated as heaven, um, which is clearly an entity that, that has a plan for human beings. Kongzi feels called um, by Tian to teach about the Tao, um, this way of living, this path to human flourishing that, that he teaches about. Um, He does. He's not a theological sort of teacher. Um, He's not going to go into a lot of detail about that, but all of that really drives what he's doing. So um, I think we clearly have both a religious and a, and a philosophical tradition. There are other elements of the Confucian tradition that, that make it a religious tradition as well. One of the things that distinguishes the Analects from a text like Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics is that Kongza is described as an exemplar of the teachings um, that he's offering. So we're not just getting an overview of, of virtues um, and rituals, um, we're also getting descriptions of Kongzi, uh, the way that he sat, the way that he ate, the way that he interacted with others, the way that he set aside a portion of every meal for his for his ancestral spirits, which is a practice that that cultivated his character and the, he thought could help to instill virtues in us. Um, so there's this interlocking relationship between religion and philosophy um, in all Confucian texts, um, especially in the Analects.
0: Mm. So let's dive into how that interlocks then in the Analects. So your your book has six chapters, and you start with the question that you've just begun to touch on, which is whether the Analects is a sacred text and what it means for a text to be sacred. And I'd like to get to that in a moment. But for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Analects, I'd like to start with chapter two, which is really the subject of when the Analects was written, who wrote it, what the, the text is really. So. For, for people who don't know too much about the Analects, who wrote it? When was it written? What kind of a text is it?
2: Yeah, so the Analects is the most influential record of Kong's teachings. Um, and so 551, to uh, we're kind of going back. I mean, if you can look at his dates... Um, and he, you know, Kongza dies about 10 years before Socrates is born. So this is a tradition that has its central figure um, a little bit before Western philosophy, but nevertheless comparable when we think about dates. Um, the text is, is not written by him. Um, parts of it probably written by some of his followers and their followers. Um, it's put together over time. Um, all of it is written prior to, um, the really influential views that we see in texts like the Mengzi and the Shunza, um, and, and so, I mean, there are a lot of different theories about when the text comes together on its own, but in reality, I think it's, it's written, these ideas are put down not too long after Kong's death. Um, but certainly in the first generation after that. Um, and there's been just outstanding text critical work done. And that's one of the things in the book that I, that I look at is, okay, um, what's the history of the text look like? But it's definitely a text that is a composite text. Um, it's put together, it's written down by multiple people, knitted together by multiple people over time. So you certainly do find, um, some different voices in the text. Nevertheless, I do think it's the case that you get a, you get a coherent, consistent vision throughout the text, despite that fact.
0: Mm. And so that vision emerges out of sort of the editorial actions of the, the compiler, not so much out of the of an authorial voice. Is that the idea?
2: Well, I think it emerges both out of the voices of, of those who, who recorded his teachings. So those are going to be his students and their students. Um, because I think they're listening to the same teachings and, and they they understand them in in basically the same way. You get some diversity, but but they're. I always tell my students they're they're taking notes on what he's teaching, right? Um, they're trying to write it down so that they remember it. Um, so you see the shared vision of a good life and human flourishing and what virtues are most important to cultivate and how we cultivate them. Um, what it means to have good character, right? You see a coherent vision of that in the text. Um, but certainly, as the as editors put it together, then you you continue to have coherence in that vision.
0: Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the editorial process. That's one of the subjects of your your um, book is the process of canonization and editorial sort of uh, work. So, but let's let's dive into the question of the sacred, um, which is the first chapter of your book. So, as you said, you, you're arguing that the Analects is a sacred text, which of course doesn't mean it's not philosophical in these various ways, but what is it to be a sacred text? Uh, in, in, is this text about sacred things? Is the text itself sacred? Is Confucius or Kongza sacred? What's What's meant by sacred text for you?
2: Yeah. Well, I outlined several things. And and um, one of the things that I think is helpful when we go to, to talk about questions like this is to not be too narrow in our definitions. I think we don't want to be too narrow in our definition of philosophy, um, religion. I mean, scholars of religion, um, ever since they began to study traditions that were outside of the Abrahamic faith traditions, um, have realized that it's very difficult to offer a definition of religion that's fully adequate. Um, and so I tend to be influenced by Wittgenstein in my own philosophical training. And I think it's helpful to um, think about a family resemblance concept, um, and the idea of many different features, um, that are a part of religious texts and, and many different features that make a text sacred. So some of that simply relates to how a text has been treated in a tradition, how it's been regarded, um, and, and a text being regarded with a special kind of reverence and respect. Um, Sacred texts also tend to um, put particular individuals at the center of them. And so if you look at sacred texts, it's not just the teachings that are within them. It's also the individuals who are described in the texts, right? So it isn't just that we're following certain teachings. We are working to emulate um, individuals who are described in the text, which certainly um Distinguishes, as I mentioned, the Analects from a, a text like Nic- Nicomachean Ethics um, and philosophical texts more generally. Um, you also find that the content, right? I mean, you can you find that the content relates to um, things that we would describe as religious or spiritual, and of course, those terms are are heavy laden. They're sort of weighed down with our own associations. But um, the idea that there are certain experiences in our lives that um, properly lead us to think that there's more, um, to life than meets the eye. Um, so I think we want to think in terms of a more, um, things that, that generate a sense of awe, gratitude, reverence, Um, And this certainly includes a sense of sacred in the everyday. So we're not always just talking about um, the existence of different kinds of of spirits or spiritual entities or deities, right? Um, We're also talking about bringing um, a sense of sacredness to one's daily activities. And that's a big part of what Kongza is arguing for in the Analects, um, is that... Um, we should regard many more things as rituals than we tend to, and we should take those rituals seriously, um, bring a sense of the sacred um, to even to our relationships with each other and to our simplest interactions. And if we regard them um, with a certain sense of sacredness, we will have better relationships and we will flourish to a greater degree as, as people.
0: Hmm. And so how does the sacred come about as the subject of philosophical um, investigation for Kongza in this text? You're, you compare it sort of uh, positively and negatively to the Nicomachean ethics. Of course, Aristotle is writing in sort of prose, essay form, setting out very Argumentative sort of structures, recognizably to uh, an audience uh, of this podcast, probably. Um, What are the arguments in uh, the Analects? How do they emerge? What do they look like?
2: Well, the Analects is, I mean, really reads like a series of aphorisms. Um, And so, I mean, you have numbered passages. And of course, we know these are written by different people at different times and and knitted together. Um, Confucians read them. Throughout history, as 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 presenting a coherent vision of a good life, I think it's a little bit difficult for us to approach the text sort of cold without um, commentaries to read alongside the text, um, and and I think um, one of the things that commentators do um, to, to when they read the text is that they relate texts. They relate passages in the text that focus on particular ideas, so the ideal of harmony as the highest cultural achievement, for example, Um, the virtue of filial piety, um, the virtue of ren, um, complete goodness, humaneness, benevolence um, they, they take those ideas and, and if they're commenting on one passage that discusses it, they're going to talk about the other passages that discuss it too. So I think it tends to be helpful for us to be able to group passages thematically together in order to see the coherent vision that's offered in the Analects. Um, Kongza is responding to questions from his students, um, throughout much of the text. Um, we're getting snippets of conversations, snippets of teachings. Um, and so different passages look different and some are more conversational, some are less conversational, um, and we have to be able to sort of bring the text together as a whole and, and see the coherence across different parts of the text. So when I teach the Analects, um, I assign uh, the text thematically. I have my students read all the passages focused on filial piety. Then I have them read all the passages focused on, on Ren, complete goodness, um, and so on. Um, And I'm actually working on a translation of the Analects that will reorganize the text in that way for readers in an attempt to bring readers a little bit closer to the way that the text was read traditionally.
0: Mm. And so this connects to the role of commentarial literature for Chinese philosophy. Of course, this is not unique to Chinese philosophy. This is the case for uh, other philosophical traditions like, like India. But it sounds like you're suggesting that in some ways, one of the issues with engaging with this text philosophically is that people are just trying to look only at the Analects and not mediated through or in conversation with, uh, with the commentaries. When, when do the commentaries begin on this text and does uh, it make sense for philosophers to be maybe looking at the commentaries too and not just looking at the Analects on their own?
2: Definitely. Um, And I always recommend to people the translation of the Analects by Ted Slingerland, which includes selections from traditional commentaries. And that's so incredibly helpful to see how debates emerged in the Confucian tradition between philosophers about how to interpret different passages, um, how to read them, um, how to understand them in relation to each other. Um, So... Um, this is certainly the, the commentarial tradition and the commentarial history on the Analects is one of the things that that makes the text a little bit more like a lot of religious texts. So scriptural commentaries are really important for my colleagues um, who work on, on Christianity, and early Christianity. Um, so they always understand when I talk about commentaries. But what you have, I mean, starting really, I mean, you think about a thinker like a third century BC thinker like Mungse, Mencius. Um, I mean, you could argue that, that Mungza is certainly giving us um, one of our early commentaries on the Analects. He's responding to Kong's view of a good life. He's building on that vision. Um, he's offering his interpretations of of passages. So very early, very soon after Kong's death, we have thinkers, building on that vision, making comments, interpreting his teachings, um, and then that continues. And and people traditionally read the Analects with what are called interlinear commentaries. And so you would have the main text of the Analects written, um, and in classical Chinese, that's going to be in columns um, of Chinese that you're reading from top to bottom and right to left in columns going down the page. And interlinear commentaries were literally tucked into the margins. And so you would have a smaller column of text that was a commentary, and then another small column of text that was sub-commentary. Um, and commentators will say, okay, here's what he, here's the ritual he's referring to. And he also refers to it in this other passage. And here's the significance of this passage. Then another commentator would come on um, and engage in philosophical debate with that commentator and say, no, I think you're wrong. I think this is its significance. And I think he might be referring to this other practice as well. Right? So you get this really lively debate and discussion in the Confucian tradition right off the bat, when we're not aware of the commentaries, though, um, we can end up reading passages from the Analects just in isolation. And it can, at first glance, look just like these little tidbits of wisdom um, where there isn't very much there. Um, the closer we look, the the more that we see that that there's a lot there.
0: Yeah yeah, so that's where you get the unfortunate uh, caricature of the sort of um, wisdom sayings of of Confucius as if they're they're just sort of inside of fortune cookies or something like that and and people tend to just ignore it. and you're suggesting this is this is just a deep mistake not not reading the text well. That's right. Yeah. So let's talk about what the text is saying. You mentioned the sacred in the everyday. And this is one of the major themes of the text. I think the idea of the importance of the Tao and its relationship um, with rituals is really crucial for Kongza and for your explication of what's going on. So what is the Tao for Kongza? And how is it related to following rituals? So maybe what are some of the rituals he's concerned with? You talked about ancestors. Maybe you can flesh that out a little bit for us.
2: Yeah. So um, Kongzi talks about the Tao, the Way, um, And one of the major debates in early China is between the emerging Taoist tradition um, and the emerging Confucian tradition concerning what exactly the Tao is. They both use that term. Um, They both um, regard it as a central idea in their, in their philosophical views and religious views, but they refer to some, they're referring to something really different. Um, So for the Confucians, the Tao is a path. Um, They liken it to a path um, through a woods. Um, So you, it's a human made path. Um, It's created through our patterns and ways of living through our relationships. Um, and it, it, it can change a little bit, uh, through generations, right? Little amendments, um, small changes. But if you think about rituals, um, and the category of rituals that, that, that we're talking about in early China, this term Li has a very broad semantic range. So we're talking about social customs, matters of etiquette, um, as well as what we would call religious rituals, um, ceremonies like analogs in our culture would be something like commencement. So you think about public ceremonies that are not just confined to religious communities, but that are a part of university communities, that are a part of schools, that are a part of our society. So you think about something like an inauguration, all kinds of rituals is a very broad category. Um, So the Tao is partly made up of those rituals. Um, It's also made up though of a a host of different virtues that we are meant to cultivate Um, and certain ways of thinking about ourselves and and our relationships with, with each other. Um, if we are able to follow the Tao by cultivating those virtues, practicing those rituals, um, then we're able to flourish. So following the Tao is, is really the key to our flourishing. For the Confucians, you can be on the path or you can be off of it. It's, it's, it's very clear, right? Um, it's a path that's been laid down for us by our parents, by our grandparents, by um, the, the former sages, earlier teachers. Um, and again, each generation might need to change it slightly Um, So I always tell my students they face a series of challenges um, in being able to sit and read texts and study them carefully that I didn't face um, because email was just emerging when I was in college and (laughs) we didn't have social media or texting. So I tell them, you know, I had distractions, but they were different and not quite so many coming at me um, at a time. Um, so they have some different challenges when it comes to what does it mean to love learning and to learn well, um, to study and reflect on on what you what you've been studying. Nevertheless, we're still, basically following the same path, but they might have to move that path uh, around some obstacles um, and adjust it slightly. So I grew up in Alaska and spent a lot of time playing in the woods in the summers. um, And I had a good friend, we would walk, we had a path that went between our two um, roads where our houses were. And it was a path through the woods. And every summer it became a really well-worn path. The path was created through our friendship, through our relationships with each other. um, And uh, so every year, um, once we kind of carved the path, out, it was a, it was slightly different. Some some years, a stump would have to be. Um, would ha- you would have to go around a stump. A tree would have to be cut down. Maybe a tree would fall. Um, some new plants were growing in one place. And so the path would be adjusted slightly to the right or slightly to the left to go around obstacles. Um, and that's a pretty good image of the Tao, right? A really well-worn path that's created through our relationships with each other, through our ways of living day in, day out, um, that will be a little bit different for each generation, but basically shares the same core.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: What is Taoism in relationship to Confucianism? They yeah. both talk about the Tao, but. Right.
2: So, Confucianism and Taoism are the two most influential indigenous traditions to China. Um, and they both emerge um, out of the same early texts. So if you go back and you think about early divination texts, like the Yijing um, that are initially coming together in like the 12th century BCE, you're getting oracle, oracle bones, um, early oracle texts. They These traditions claim those same texts and those same practices as their origins, um, but they come to disagree sharply about what the Tao is um, on questions of human nature as well, the role of ritual in a good life. Um, so for the, for that emerging Taoist tradition, um, and we can, sometimes we could call them proto-Taoists. We could call them primitivists. There's a lot of disagreement over, um, what to call them. And, and it's a tradition that's taking shape. But if you look at texts like the Tao Te Ching, The Zhuangzi, you see some commonalities despite the differences between those texts. Um, One of them is that they have a vision of the Tao, which differs importantly from from what the Confucians say about it. So for the early Taoists, it's not a clear path made up of virtues and rituals and certain kinds of relationships. Um, It's actually an an entity, um, a force. Um, that interacts with us, that we are meant to harmonize ourselves with. We are originally in harmony with the Tao. Uh, the, t- the text of the Tao Te Ching tells us that it nurtures and guides us, um, that it's the mother of the 10,000 things. Consistently, um, feminine terms and feminine metaphors are used to describe it, um, but a nurturing, um, guiding force um, that that, uh, that interacts with all creatures, not just human beings. So you get a mm. really different view of the Tao.
0: Mm. Now you mentioned relationships though, for both of them, um, and this reminds me of the other big topic in chapter three, which is filial piety. So let's go back to the Confucians and set the Taoist aside for a moment for Kongza filial piety is really important. What, what is filial piety and why is it so important for Kongza?
2: Yeah. So filial piety is a deep seated, um, reverence and love and gratitude, um, for especially one's parents, but this also extends to one's grandparents, um, to one's ancestors, um, and, and really it bleeds over into how you interact with and feel about um, other elders. So I always, I always point out to my students, um, it's a multifaceted virtue, right? We have to use multiple English words to really capture it. Respect, reverence, gratitude, and love all being central. Um, It's a virtue. It includes not just, um, it isn't just about moral duties. Um, It certainly includes certain behaviors, but also our attitudes, our intentions, our motives, our, our feelings, our emotions. Um, in order to be a filial child, it's, it's going to be all of those things rolled up together um, to possess that virtue. So very holistic view, um, certainly a, a certain kind of virtue ethical view that we find in the text. And there are a number of distinctive features of, of the view of filial piety that we find in the text. One of them um, is the claim that filial piety is the root of the other virtues, which we see in Analects two. Um, the idea that filial piety is the root of ren, um, which is the term that is used for complete goodness. So the term, the virtue term that applies to the person who's cultivated all these different virtues that are a part of, of the Confucian way. Um, so the idea there is that the parent-child relationships provide the foundation for our moral development, and is, it's the root um, from which other virtues are going to, to grow. Um, definitely there's something to that. And I've, I've worked a lot on this element of Confucianism. If we look at developmental psychology today, um, it's, it's absolutely true that, that the early relationships between children and their primary caregivers. Usually their parents are, are absolutely pivotal, um, in their, in their development as a person, their moral development, their social development. Um, so there's, there's something the Confucians get right about that. Um, the the text repeatedly stresses that it isn't just about behavior. Um, the text says Kongza is frustrated with the fact that a lot of people are just going through the motions um, and just you know you're just caring for your parents physically in terms of their material needs. But filial piety is more than that, and he's at pains to point that out. Um, we also get some interesting teachings about remonstrance um, that suggest that he doesn't think that um, filial piety is just about obe- immediate obedience. Um, it involves if you really respect your parents if you're really a filial child then you will voice your concern if you disagree with them now you're going to voice it gently and respectfully um, but nevertheless that's a part of your filial obligations is to express it if you if you disagree with your parents. Um, in the end you, you're supposed to follow their lead diligently and without resentment if, if you're not able to, to bring them around to your way of thinking um, but that conversation, from a respectful place is a part of your obligation. So it's, it's definitely not immediate automatic compliance.
0: Hmm. And so filial piety then is not just uh, following a duty or just materially caring for your parents or putting them uh, sort of above all else. It's, it's more nuanced. Um, there's a sort of famous story about Uh, someone sounds like to many people, letting, letting his father off the hook for, uh, for stealing something, uh, as a, as an example of filial piety, how, what's that story and and how does that tell us, uh, what Kongza thinks filial piety is?
2: Yeah. So that's, um, in Analects 1318, Kongza is talking with the Duke of Shu, and the Duke, uh, says to Kongza, um, well, among my people, there's there's one that we celebrate. We call him the upright one. So it's just kind of an honorific like term. We call him the upright one. He's the example for all of us. Um, and the Duke tells Kongza, um, when his father stole a sheep, when his father took a sheep that wasn't his own, uh, he immediately reported him to the authorities. And so we call him the upright one. Um, and Kongza sort of scratches his head and says, well, among my people, uh, those we consider upright are different from this. Um, and he says... Sons cover for their fathers. Fathers cover for their sons. This is what we what we think upright um, consists in. So obviously lots of discussion of that passage um, and, and there's a certain way in which uh, you, you, you worry about the idea that families are just supposed to cover up each other's crimes, right? Um, and so this is a great example of where if we look at the commentarial tradition, we can get some help in um, how to how to read the text. Um, one of the things to notice is that the term um, that is used in that passage by the Duke for describing um, the theft, um, there are actually a lot of different terms in classical Chinese for, for th- thie- thievery and robbery. Um, and it's not the term for habitual thievery. Um, it's a term that means to take something, usually when someone is under duress um, or, or something is something's wrong, and so they take something. So it's not clear um, what the circumstances are. Um, is, um, is, is the father in question, um, is he suffering from um, some sort of dementia and doesn't, doesn't remember what sheep are his? Um, is he stealing out of need? Um, in either of these cases, it's really a shortcoming of the son from a Confucian perspective because the son doesn't seem to know what's going on with his father, um, and so that's worth considering. But it's also really kind of a callous act if you think about someone just automatically reporting um, their father to the authorities without even trying to address the situation first. So the passage doesn't tell us that no reparations are to be made um, to, to the person um, who had a sheep stolen from them, right? Right. Um, the idea is that, um, a son is responsible when something like this happens um, and and you don't just treat your father like any other person who's doing this. So by analogy, I think, I mean, in a way you have a really different culture. That's it's, It is true that you have a different culture, but but I think that we can also just relate to the scenario. So if I'm in a jewelry shop with my dad um, and, and he steals um, a Rolex, right? I see him pocket a Rolex, <laughs> um, then what am I going to do? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to like take out my phone and and dial 911, right? I'm, I'm not going to automatically go, hey, hey, this this man is no, I mean, I'm gonna say to my dad, what what did you what did you just do? Wait, wait a second, wait a second, take that out of your pocket. I'm gonna try to deal with it. Now I'm gonna make sure that the watch is returned for sure, right? Um, but my biggest concern is going to be why is my dad doing that? Right. Um, because i'm I'm his daughter, right? Um, and and we have a different relationship. If I, If I see a guy across the store that I don't know do it, then I'm gonna tell the shop owner I'm gonna report him right away, right? But it's different if if you're standing there with a family member, you have different obligations.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's an important important point for for Kongza over and against other other thinkers, uh, like like Mozo, who you talk about in in your text as well. So um, that's a, that's a nice point there. Let me shift gears to another interpretive controversy. So, in chapter four, you take up the controversy over Tian, which is often, as you said, translated as heaven. And one of the things you do in your book is that you're not only explaining the Analects to readers as a guide, but you're engaging with different scholarly and philosophical approaches to it. And in this chapter, you take up a disagreement. Um, that's among a number of people, but in particular, the approach of Roger Ames, a philosopher at University of Hawaii, Manoa, and uh, Philip Ivanhoe, who is a historian at Georgetown University. Um, so maybe two questions here together for, for folks who aren't familiar with the background. Can you tell us a little bit about the main approaches to understanding the the text, um, the Analects and Confucianism, and then what in particular is this interpretive controversy over Tian? How does that relate to the these different ways of understanding the text?
2: So, um, when when it comes, I think when it comes to Tian and how to understand it, and, and you think about different interpretations of it. Um, one of the things that I think Roger Ames in his work has done so well and that's been so important and that shaped me in, in my early interest in Confucianism and my development as a scholar is that he really wants to emphasize that we're dealing with a view that looks really different from those we're familiar with. Um, and we, we immediately will tend to think about traditions we're familiar with um, tied to our own culture um, and try to draw lines of comparison um, and and he worries that that is is really going to lead us astray, and that we will fail to rem- remember that we're dealing with a very different culture, um, that that is, I mean, putting forward some some really different kinds of ideas. Um, you have other philosophers and, and another uh, another um, scholar that that um, whose interpretation I talk about. I talk about Michael Puett's work. I also talk about P.J. Ivanhoe's work, um, and and Ivanhoe is is deeply interested in trying to think about where are the comparisons, where are the differences Um, do we have some virtue ethical thinkers here and how are they different from virtue ethical thinkers that we're familiar with? Right. But how can we still, um, draw some of those lines of comparison, um, while also taking account of the differences? Um, so I, you know, I admire, um, both of these scholars in different ways and they've both, um, influenced me in different ways. Um, and I do think that when we go to think about comparative philosophy, comparative religion, um, doing good work rests on our ability to balance, um, similarities and differences. Now, at the end of the day, um, we find that different scholars just have different readings of these texts and see different degrees of similarity um, or difference with different traditions. I think it can be helpful when we go to approach that to look at the history of an idea like Tien um, and to see where it came from. And that's a part of what I do in the text. I think it's also important to remember that it's an evolving, changing idea through time. So Tien um, has its origins in in the concept of Shangdi, which which, um, seems to be, I think Michael is right when he says, no one knows exactly who or what Shangdi was, Mm -hmm. um, but we know that Shangdi was some sort of very powerful entity, perhaps deity, perhaps um, very, very high and remote sort of ancestral spirit um, that people often prayed to through petitions offered to their own ancestors. So Shangdi was sort of at the apex um, of early Chinese religion. Eventually, Shangdi morphs into Tian and is less of um less of a deity um, in shape and in what people are saying about it and, and more of a a force for human good. Um, so I kind of think we have something that's sort of a quasi personal, um, entity, maybe not quite a being. So it's a tricky idea. It doesn't map onto anything. It doesn't correspond to anything that we have coming out of Judaism or Christianity or Islam, right? Um, if we think about traditions that are a little bit closer, um, to, to the Western Academy in terms of history. Um, so it, it can be difficult. Um, Roger Ames tends to see the analects as, as he puts it, as, as presenting a a, a sort of atheistic religiosity. That's the term that he uses. Um, so he really doesn't see any continuity between earlier conceptions of deities and Tien in the analects, Um, I see some continuity and some discontinuity, and I think we mm-hmm. wanna hold those things together. Um, I also think that that by the time we get to Shunza, I think that um, we're getting a much less um, personal entity um and so some of what I see in Roger's description I think um rings true in in the text of the Shunza, um is a little bit closer, more of an impersonal entity, uh closer to nature. Um I think that the Analects, though offers a, a distinctive picture of Tien. Um so I think it 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 hovers in between. It's it's not um, it's again, I think we have something that's kind of like a, a quasi personal entity or agent, but not quite a being, not a deity, um, but also not a thorough, thoroughly impersonal force. Mm. And and that makes it tricky. And that's I think why we have very real disagreements between outstanding scholars who have who have worked with this text for their entire careers um, and translated this text for for so many people and made such important contributions. It's it's I mean, these are genuinely hard ideas. To make sense of, and to try, to, and just to try to describe um, and and relate to to other ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so l- let me make a connection here, if I may, between this discussion and a discussion you raise in chapter five, where you talk about, uh, in particular, the commentarial tradition, and of course, one of the most famous commentaries on the Analects is that of Zhu Xi, writing during the Song Dynasty. And you know something interesting about Zhu Xi. Given what we just described, which it, it sounds like you were talking a little bit about a worry about potential anachronisms creeping into our understanding of the Analects reading uh, it through the lens of the later Shunzi, um, one of the things that uh, Ju Xi does, according to you and other commentators, is he, uh, even though he's very systematic and he focuses on deriving an internally coherent story, um, Commentators in, after him criticized him for being anachronistic, reading the text through other philosophical ideas that come after Confucius. But something that's interesting here is we study Jushi's philosophy in its own right as an interesting kind of philosophy, even though you might say he's, he's a bit anachronistic. So I'm curious if you think that this is a a fruitful way forward for some of the philosophers that you've mentioned earlier, like Roger Ames or Philip Ivanhoe or whomever, um, or should we maybe not read Xi the way that we are because of his anachronisms, or is there some disanalogy between these ways of uh, sort of superimposing concepts onto texts?
2: Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, by the time that Xi is writing um, in the Song Dynasty, Buddhist metaphysics is is in the air that he breathes. Um, It's just a part of of how he tends to think and understand the world. Um, So you know, later philosophers that are able to see this in his work, we're able to see that. Um, And and so I think if you look at Jushi's commentary, which is brilliant right and he de- he dedicates so much of his career to writing these incredible commentaries and in places his commentary is so helpful and sheds light on the text and isn't sort of drenched in in that Buddhist metaphysics other places um, he clearly is working with his metaphysical view that that is that is straight out of the song Dynasty and that reflects his own metaphysics um, and his own distinctive philosophical view right which is so much more metaphysical than anything we see in classical China so I think that one of the most important things about studying Commentators like Jushi um, is that it's a reminder that even even the best scholars, um, the most refined scholars of the text, who dedicate their lives to the text, um, can can sort of um, tend to read the text through the lens of their own views. I also think when you love a text, um, I I think it can be tempting to um, sort of want it to be supportive of your own personal religious view or your own outlook. And so I think that if one of the merits of studying commentators like Jushi is that it can remind us to be careful of that, right, to watch out for that. Um, it can also remind us that someone can do really good work on a text and you might disagree with them about one set of issues, but you might find that their work is really insightful and helpful on another set of issues. Um, and that's that's definitely the case with Juxi. I mean, we can see where he's talking about um, Principles like Li and Qi in places in the Analects, and and those ideas are just not in play there. But there are other places where he's able to explain rituals um, and the significance of rituals in relation to cultivating virtues better than any other commentator. Um, and that's not a product of the Song Dynasty, right? That's not a product of his own view. Um, so you kind of, we kind of have to use a, a good historical eye and sort out, okay, what what is kind of a, a much later view that's finding its way into this interpretation, um, and what is is really, you know, uh, pretty straightforwardly um, faithful to to that time and place.
0: Yeah, it struck me that one of the things that was happening—tell me if I'm right or not—in your—in your, in your book—is that you're teasing apart the different methods with which we might investigate the Analects and trying to help readers um, appreciate things like looking at the text-critical work, looking at the history and understanding the context, so to avoid anachronisms, but also looking at what's philosophically interesting and puzzling, um, looking at at a sort of the religious studies angle. And you're trying to both show how they're interconnected, but also caution us against uh, too rapid um, inferences or too rapid um, lumping of things together. Is that a, a... good way of getting at what you're doing in the book.
2: Yes, definitely. And I think when we when we go to use terms like, atheism or theism i think we want to we want to be careful right um to be faithful to the particular time we're dealing with right um so you don't i mean Kongs is not denying the existence of of spirits um, but at the same time um, atheism i mean to to think about atheism or theism w- we would have to think about okay what kind of theism is this because it's a different kind of theism than than other forms of theism and sometimes theism is just if you look at philosophy of religion it just is equated with a a certain kind of monotheism. And we really find a very different kind of theistic view, I think, in these texts. Um, So I don't think we want to be completely afraid to use some of those terms, but I think we have to be careful to refine them and to say, okay, we can use this term, but let's be very clear about what we mean by it and what kind of theism we're talking about. Um, So I think the same is true when we go to talk about something like virtue ethics, when we go to talk about views of the self, uh, views of of the human person, um, I think we can articulate the differences and the similarities, and, and we just want to be really attentive to the to the terms that we're using. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's go back to the chapter five then about disciples, commentators, and the canonical status. So I I just mentioned Zhu Xi, who's a, a famous uh, commentator, later commentator on the Analects, but of course he's not the earliest one, and as you said er, said before, that um, there were, of course, disciples of Kongza who were responsible for writing down um, what he said. They had, there was a process of canonization. Um, why is it important to understand the process of canonization, first of all? And why is there any controversy about it? Why, why isn't it just like, look, it was canonized at this date, and that's when it became part of the Confucian canon? What's the issue here?
2: It's a great question. So in the Confucian tradition, canonization doesn't really happen um, in sort of one fell swoop. Now, my colleagues in religious studies will say it doesn't happen in one fell swoop in Christianity either, right? Um, which is true. And this is where I think it's helpful for us to look across different traditions and learn deeply about them. Um, but canonization to a greater extent in Confucianism happens in different waves and through the work of different thinkers. Um, And through the way that the text is regarded by different thinkers, given a place, recognized at different points in Confucian history. For example, there are different numbers of texts that are sort of lifted up above the others and said, these are the most important ones. Right. So it's four books at one time and it's five classics at another. And that's that's changing through history. Right. Um, And so. Understanding that allows us to understand why it would be wrong for us, I think, to, to say it's not a sacred text just based on our reading of what it means. Um, a part of what makes something a sacred text um, is the way that it's treated throughout history within the tradition that it's a part of. Um, and this is where you can see, I mean, Confucianism is a part of a tradition. It's a part of a tradition where people practice certain rituals, where people recognize certain texts as the most important texts and the texts that they should attend to in living a good life. Um, and there are some more resemblances with religious traditions there than philosophical traditions, right? Um, and so we find different kinds of resemblances, but, um, if you think about the fact that this is a text that's been treated with reverence, um, has been regarded as important for people to attend to and read, um, been included in on in what we would look at as, as sort of really, I mean, these are these are pretty official movements. So I mean, the Confucian the Confucian tradition really drove the civil service examinations, the development of civil service examinations in China, um, and. Um, the question was always, which text should people be examined over? Um, and, and the Analects was one of them, right? So the Analects becoming one of those texts is, is a pivotal moment in its history. Um, and, and its place, um, within a tradition, its place within a, within a culture and within a wider society as well. Um, so once you see the way that the text is received and treated and regarded, um, in people's lives in various times and places throughout um, the history of of East Asia, it helps you to realize why, okay, if if it's regarded as a sacred text um, in those cultures, um, then it doesn't seem quite right right for us just to look at the content of the text and the teachings of the text and say, um, I don't think it's a sacred text just based on our interpretation.
0: Mm. Mm. Thank you, that's helpful. So a uh, bunch of questions that I could ask you, uh, but I think uh, one, if you don't mind, that comes to mind is modern day canonization. Does understanding canonization in this context, very different maybe than uh, in philosophy, does it does it help us understand canonization more generally? How, how texts become to canonize and have uh, a certain role to play? Or would you not want to make a inference from what you've done here to things like the philosophical canon or other kinds of canons?
2: Oh, I would. I mean, I do think that it it helps us understand multiple things about canonization. I mean, I think that one of the things that especially those um, in theology and religion can take away from this is that canonization can happen over a much longer historical time period and through many more different kinds of events um, than are, are sometimes thought about as canonization. Um, And it can also involve different texts um, than just one. So we tend to think like in Christianity, for example, about the canonization of the Bible, right? Um, And in Confucianism, you have multiple texts that are canonized over time, right? Um, So I think it can help us think about how that can take place in really different ways in different cultures. And I think that can help us attend more closely to why we've sometimes... Wrongly excluded some traditions um, from study because we tend to think, "Okay, oh, well, this doesn't really fit the fit the qualifications of a religion or a sacred tradition or sacred texts." Um, I think we want to recognize the different ways that texts are recognized and canonized through time and how long that process can be. When it comes to the issue of a canon um, in philosophy, a philosophical canon, um, I think a part of what you want to learn from philosophy from the philosophy of the Confucians is that canonization um, is, is partly a product of um, particular people recognizing the text. Um, and so a part of what we have to do in the discipline of philosophy, if we want to have more diversity in our curriculum, in terms of the different traditions of philosophy that we're representing, that we're teaching, um, is we have to think about how um, texts were important and recognized as, as critical in different parts of the world and in, and in different philosophical traditions that didn't have contact with each other for a long time. Um, and I think we're going to have to recognize that there's, there's a process of canonization going on in India really early. There's a process of canonization going on in Japan. There's a process in China, right? You have all these huge philosophical traditions, big philosophical canons um, and texts that are... Are so important um, in those places, and and you have a genuine tradition that emerges there. Um, and of course, we're very aware of of the canon. I think if you're trained in the discipline of philosophy in the United States, then you're, I mean, you're thinking about ancient Greece as sort of the beginning of the canon, and then you're moving forward, right? And we, we've come to be more inclusive in including the voices of women, um, including um, many different kinds of philosophy, but we still don't do very well at including entirely different canons. And again, I think if you look at Japan, um, India, and China, you get three really good examples of big traditions with big canons um, that just are, are taking place in a different part of the world and among a different people.
0: Hmm. Thinking about in, in inclusion and exclusion of voices, your concluding chapter, "Voices from the Margin and Enduring Influence," talks about the story of a woman who appears in the text, and she's the only woman who appears in the text. So, I'd like to conclude by having you say a little bit about your interpretation of this story, since as I read your book, you're you're putting forward what I, I think is a new idea as a kind of corrective to some previous views. So maybe. Can you just give us a little bit of quick background? How were women positioned in Chinese society in Kongzi's day, and who is this woman, and what are you arguing about her in the text?
2: Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, my my argument about Nanza and um, the passage that discusses a woman named Nanza um, in the Analects um, is it is it's a new um, take on on all of that, and and this is an element of the Analects that I think has been um, understudied. Um, it's also a story that I'm influenced in my reading of because of my um, scholarly engagement um, in the fact that I'm situated in a theology and religious studies department. Um, and so there's been much discussion um, in, among, um, in, in recent years of the story of Mary Magdalene in Christianity. Um, and uh, still to this day, a, a widely um, associated, um, what turns out to be a something that's not true, um, story with Mary Magdalene was that she was a prostitute um and scholars now recognize that this is not um this is not accurate um and so we're having to go back and and revise she came to be associated with actually another woman and there's a very interesting interesting literature on this um but she was it was a case of mistaken identity and and it was also a way of of minimizing the importance of a woman um who was one of Jesus's disciples um and who played a really important uh, role in Jesus ministry and in, in early Christianity um, but was she was um, came to be regarded as you know as, as a, a woman who was sinful and um, that we should look down at not as a model. Um, so because of my familiarity with that story, I, I, I began to look more closely at Nanza and I began to wonder, um, is, do we know everything there is to know here um, in looking at the commentaries on this passage? There's a passage in the Analects, that describes Kongza having a conversation with her. Um, one of Kongs' students is um, unhappy with the fact that he agrees to have an audience with her, um, and you know he interacts with different people. And he, the student, thinks it's not appropriate, um, and then you know Kong Kong's sort of dismisses it. Um, and so um, it, it really turns out that the Confucian commentarial tradition. Um perpetuates um, uh, something that there's very little historical basis for, which is the idea that she is a woman of ill repute. Um, and once we trace the the history, um the history of the sto- her story in different texts, and she's mentioned in a number of different early Chinese texts, we really find that there is very little basis for any of that um, that a- a- at very least, it's been blown out of proportion and details added without any historical basis. Um, but I think um, there's also just a, a reason to think that she's, it is a, a case of mistaken identity and she's being associated with someone that, that she's not. Um, and so that's frustrating to see that because of course, that's one of the passages, uh, one of the very few passages in the Analects that dis- discusses women. Um, and early China is not a great place for women, right? It's not, by no means are women equal. I will say though, that when you, when you look at early China and position of women in early Chinese texts, Um, the early Chinese did believe that women could cultivate virtues. And this is something you see in some some, um, early Confucian texts. The idea was that women could practice rituals. and, And indeed, in the early ritual texts, we have rituals that are outlined for women, women can possess the virtue of ritual propriety and a host of other Confucian virtues as well. Um, Over time in the Confucian tradition, that changes and eventually women come to be excluded um, from those those forms of of moral cultivation. But in the early period, um, women are viewed much more charitably and you really have what we would call a more progressive view concerning women. In contrast with, again, ancient Greece, where you take I hate to always choose Aristotle here, but the idea that, I mean, for Aristotle, women are not moral agents, right? Um, In early China, they are. Women can cultivate a range of different virtues um, and not just the virtues you would think that they would be able to cultivate. So it's not just virtues like maternal rectitude. It's ritual propriety. It's skill in argumentation. Um, and we have texts that document women's virtues as well. Um, so I think um, it's important to think about that history and the ways in which women are thought about in relation to texts like the Analects. And and again, I mean, a lot of this rests on being able to take the text and situate it properly historically and in relation to other texts um, and think about what's going on, but also really interrogate the text closely um, and not simply rely on commentators who in some cases perpetuate... Stories and myths um, that don't have a basis in in fact.
0: Mm. So the the lesson is that historical situation is important for for us as well as the commentators and the original texts that we we can't just approach these texts as if uh, as if we're not situated or the the texts were not situated.
2: That's right. Yeah. Well,
0: thank you very much for your time. I have one more question for you. You mentioned that you're working on a translation of the Analects. Is that what you're working on now? Tell us what your current projects are.
2: That's right. Yeah. So I'm working on a translation of the Analects um, for Norton. Um, and, and again, that will, that will be a translation that includes um, attention to a lot of feminist issues in the text, like what I just talked about, um, that tries to give the, the proper weight to, to reading those passages um, more clearly and closer to the historical context, and that that reorganizes the text so that we can look at it thematically, um, which brings us a little bit closer, I think, to what the way that the tradition has read it, um, so that we can see the unity and consistency in the text um I am also working on a, a new comparative project that that looks at um, some of the the strains in the early Taoist tradition and views of nature and the Dao and humanity um, in comparison with um, certain views in Christian spirituality so looking at the Ignatian tradition um, at the at the early Celtic tradition, Celtic Christianity, and especially the idea of nature and the, the way that the divine um, moves in nature and and interacts with us.
0: Great! I look forward to seeing that translation come out, and the link to your guide to the Analects uh, from Oxford will be on the podcast link for everyone to take a look at. Thanks again for your for your time, Aaron. It was a great conversation. I Appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Thank you.